So we're in Philippians, this first chapter, and what we're doing is we're moving through verse 12 all the way through verse 26. And this is a, a moment, an intense portion of history where this really highly intelligent and humbly transformed man called Paul, he finds himself, along with all of his efforts, shackled, cuffed. He's confined. He's in prison. His one desire, he had a singular desire, which was to reach this Gentile world with the love of Jesus. And he can't accomplish this goal because he finds himself confined, wrongfully imprisoned. This can feel so frustrating and so confusing, but what comes next is, is nothing short of transcendent. So to his detractors, those who were against him in the first place, this would have been so good. It's the, the powerful finding a way to quiet the empowered, Paul empowered by Jesus. His detractors would have also been like, wow, this man who claimed that he met Jesus in this really illuminating experience, Jesus who showed him the error of his dogmatic ways, this miraculous moment, this miraculous Jesus wasn't capable of keeping Paul out of prison. But then you have to ask yourself the question, was that ever the mission of Jesus? Safety? Comfort? Or was his mission greater than that? Truth, peace, love, despite the circumstances. So Paul, he finds himself in this situation for reasons that at best case seem extremely unclear and in the truest sense, nefarious. And he's having to endure this, this unjust long-suffering. And so if you and I happen to be there in this moment in history, we would have observed two very different and distinct things. The first thing that would have come to mind watching all of this unfold, watching all of this play out is this. And if you really wanted to break, crush, demolish the spirit of another human being, I mean destroy it, destroy their joy, eliminate all reason for gratitude. If you wanted to do that to another human being, then you do this. You watch another human being live in such a way where they're living from their truest passion, where they're exercising all of their energy to see something they absolutely believe in come to be. For Paul, it was his belief in Jesus and his resurrection and what Jesus came to do. Watch a human being give everything, blood, sweat, and tears for something they believe in so strongly. And then see that same human being witness movement, witness the effect of their hard work, of their effort. Watch that human being suddenly get filled up with joy at what's happening. Paul is shaking the earth with the love of Christ. Watch that human being see change 
And in that apex moment of joy where Paul is witnessing this transformation happening, instead of rewarding him, instead of saying, well done, great job, pat on the back, this is awesome. Instead of that, punish him for it. Instead of that, tell him to be quiet. Tell him, know your place. Confine that human being. Constrict them. This is Paul, living for what he knows he believes in. And this is the powerful, working to crush him, to eradicate his joy, to demolish all of his efforts. We would have observed that if we were there in that moment. And the second thing that we would observe, which is just the complete opposite, so transcendent, is this. As you watch Paul in his chains, constricted, confined, you would have to think, wow. Wow, how is it possible for a human being who's given everything and received this to still be filled up, to still contain so much gratitude and joy, to still have every reason to sing, to be able to create lists of thankfulness, How is it possible for a man like that to exist with that much joy in the midst of his circumstances? You would think, wow. How is it possible that a man in that circumstance would have so much joy that it's affecting my joy? It's welling up in me. I'm being filled with gratitude because of his perspective on life despite his circumstance. And so the question would follow, what's the nature of this joy? This joy that carries within it the capacity to keep the chin up of a man who's been wrongfully confined. Well, that's what we're here for today. So glad you're with us. Thank you, John, for setting context for what Paul wrote to the church in Philippi. Uh, Why don't we stand together and read part of that letter today? We're going to read Philippians 1, verses 12 through 26. So if you have your Bibles or your Bible apps, as you're standing up, go ahead and turn there. Philippians is right after Ephesians and right before Colossians, toward the end of the New Testament. Here's what Paul writes. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. 
The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You can go ahead and grab a seat. You know, as as Pastor Steve kicked off our series studying this letter that was written to the church in Philippi, Paul called his relationship with the church a partnership in the gospel, a koinonia, a fellowship, sharing everything. And he takes this thought a bit further in our text today. Right away in verse 12, Paul writes, now I want you to know brothers and sisters. So we can look at this and go, you know, this is kind of like a family letter, a letter to Paul's beloved. It's not like those Christmas letters we get from our friends and family right around the holidays. Uh, You know, the letters that you read the first paragraph and then throw in the trash because people use those to boast about how awesome their kids are and how perfect their life is and how everything's just going great. Um, I wish people, like I get a lot of those letters, I wish people would write about the most embarrassing moments they had over the past year. Like if I were to write that about my past year, I'd say something like, I watched all eight seasons of Full House on Hulu this year. Uh, I struck out in slow pitch softball twice. I started using Rogaine. I drove through Wienerschnitzel a couple times. Like those would be embarrassing things to share. I think that would be refreshing instead of using a letter like that as an opportunity to brag under the guise of holiday cheer. Paul takes a different approach with the letter he writes here. A family letter. And in a healthy family, you don't keep the tough stuff from one another. You explain your pain. You talk about what you're, what you're wrestling with. You share what you're going through. So he writes, now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. And one of the things we see from Paul really throughout this letter is that advancing the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that this is his primary concern. But he's also writing to ease his Philippian family's worry. Like they've seen him in some tough situations, especially when it comes to prisons and chains. And and they've seen him go through the worst of it. So they probably were a bit concerned. And Paul's saying, hey, 
I want you to know that there is good in what I have endured. Paul's in prison yet again, and he's letting them know that what has happened to him has served to move forward the good news of Jesus. In the next verse, he, he, verse, he even goes as far as to say, I am in chains for Christ. But as I was studying this week, and I read what Paul wrote, before I even got to this verse, I couldn't get past the second part of the last verse. When Paul wrote, what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. And it prompted a question that I began to process. What has happened to me? What adversity or difficulty or tough situation has happened to me that has actually served to advance the gospel? What about you? What has happened to you that could serve to advance the gospel? But before we start working through and wrestling with that question, just start thinking about the first part of this. What has happened to you? For as difficult as it may be, start taking an inventory of some of the more challenging circumstances you've gone through or are currently going through. We briefly mentioned this in the past series, but when this church started, Pastor Steve heard very clearly from the Lord to go after people's pain, bring healing to the people of Livermore. It's a message that is extended to Brentwood, Brentwood, Walnut Creek, Danville, Hayward, to our brothers and sisters in the incarcerated church through CF Inside, and throughout the world to our audience that's tuning in right now online. Bring healing for what has happened to people. So I just want to ask you to look back over the past month or year or 10 years. What has happened to you? What adversity have you faced? What pain have you endured? What trouble have you come across? Or, or we could just say it like this. What are your chains? What are your chains? What are those things that feel like they're, they're holding you captive or, or weighing you down? Maybe someone you love or you yourself are dealing with anxiety or, or depression or something challenging in the mind. And it just is a daily struggle. It feels like it's binding you. Maybe you're struggling with an addiction and the daily battle that that is. Maybe you've gone through some relational adversity. You've gone through a tough divorce, a breakup, experiencing loneliness or rejection. Or maybe there's a physical ailment, some unexpected diagnosis, infertility that you're really processing right now. Or, or maybe it's a loss, a loss of a job, a loss of a friend or a loss of a loved one. What are your chains? What has happened to you that feels like it's weighing you down and holding you captive? Now, before we move even further, let me just make one thing very clear to us today. One of the most often misquoted verses in the Bible is 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, where we read that God will not give you more than you can handle. I've heard this verse spoken over people who are experiencing adversity, dealing with difficult chains in their life an absurd amount of times. And because it's been misquoted so regularly, and because we are constantly told how much better life is when we, 
when we start following Jesus, when we inevitably face adversity, all of this can be difficult to reconcile. It feels like the eight-year-old girl who, who went to work with her dad for take your kid to work day, and after about an hour of walking around the office, she started crying and getting really cranky, and her, her dad said, honey, what's, what's wrong? And, and his other coworkers gathered around her to see if they could help, and, and with tears streaming down her face, she looked up at her dad and said, daddy, where are all the clowns you said you worked with? She expected one thing and experienced something different, which is the same thing that happens to us. I've given my life to Jesus. I've been told God won't give me more than I can handle, so where's all the good stuff? Why does this feel like more than I can handle right now? Well, here's the deal. That verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is about temptation, not about difficult circumstances. Because, and, and most of this know, know this, life will inevitably give you more than you can handle. There will be a time or a number of times when we wonder why in the world God is letting us face the adversity, allowing us to be captured by the chains that we're captured with, and we'll just say, why? Where are you in all this? So because this happens... One of the questions that I have learned to attempt to process when life gives me more than I can handle, when something happens to me or a loved one that I would never choose, the question that I try to ask myself is, does this circumstance define my belief in God or does my belief in God have victory over this circumstance? Or more simply put, does the gospel transcend my circumstance? Now, if you're in the place today where you do trust that God will ultimately have victory in whatever situation you're in, that you believe at all times God's word, his gospel, his love, his grace, his compassion transcends whatever it is you're going through, or you at least see that as a possibility, then that's a great place to be. I am so excited about where you're at in your journey with Jesus. But I also wanna make sure you know that if you're not in that place, if you haven't arrived there, that's okay too. Because maybe the person who needs you to be preaching good news to, the first person that needs to hear the gospel from you is you. And Pastor Paul Tripp said, when the unexpected, the unwanted, the unplanned, the hard and difficult enters your life, you will always preach some kind of gospel to yourself. When adversity appears, when one of these chains shows up, what gospel are you preaching to yourself? You know, I, I love that Paul writes that what has happened to him has served to advance the gospel. He clearly has others in mind. But sometimes before we can get to that place, we have to make sure we know and are reminded of the good news of Jesus Christ for ourselves and what that means to us and for our situations and circumstances. If we want our faith in God to have victory over our situations, we need to constantly remind ourselves of the good news that Paul describes in verse 19 of our text today when he says, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. 
Now, this word deliverance that Paul writes here is the Greek word soterion, and it means salvation. So what Paul is really saying is that whether it's in this life or the next, I know a name that breaks every chain. I know a name that understands every pain. I know who's in control, and I'm learning to trust that provision. Let's get in the habit of preaching good news to ourselves. The the good news that God is for us, not against us. The good news that God sent his one and only son to live the life we should have lived and die the death we should have died. The good news that the pain we're experiencing is not punishment for our past, but the truth that God has removed our sins and wrongdoings and transgressions as far as the east is from the west. The good news, like Pastor Steve taught us last week, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Let's preach that to ourselves. You know, the most tension I felt around this sermon as I was preparing is that I knew I was going to be talking about our pain. But more specifically, like Paul writes in this text, how our pain can impact others. And the thing that was weighing heaviest on my heart was I didn't want to minimize the pain that you're currently going through. I didn't want to minimize the hurt that you've experienced in the past. I didn't want to just say, yeah, that's fine. I'm sorry you're dealing with that, but let's make sure we we channel this correctly. I want you to know very clearly right now that if you've experienced significant pain in your life, that your church sees you and your church is here for you, whatever that looks like. So I'm not minimizing that at all. It is real, it is valid, and I know it hurts. So I think this is so important for us to hear that we need to remind ourselves of the good news of Jesus for us, that we need to preach the gospel to ourselves. You know, in verse 14, Paul writes, and because of my chains, because I've gone through this, because I've, I've endured this, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. There is good in what I have gone through. Paul went through this type of trial before anyone else, and it's now serving as an example for other people and producing something great in them. But let's not miss the fact that in order to be an example, he had to believe the truth of of the gospel of Jesus Christ first. He had to know this. You know, when I, was, when I was 16 years old, my family went on a family vacation to Kauai, and we were so grateful that our parents saved up money for us to go on an awesome vacation like that, and the island was beautiful. It was absolutely gorgeous. It was stunning. Like, it was unbelievable, but like I said, I was 16 years old, so, so the beauty of the island didn't really capture me all that much. Like, it was like, okay, that's, that's cool and all, but what, what are we doing while we're here? And, and, and I had this terrible attitude the whole time, and, and I was just complaining constantly about how bored I was, and it got so bad that at one point, my dad got so fed up with me that he looked at me with this, the dad look that you know, you're just like, uh-oh, we're in trouble, and he looked at me and said, Steve, you have a crap attitude, and the only problem was he didn't say crap and, and it was the first and only time in my life, in my 35 years on this planet, the only time I've ever heard my dad cuss. Like, he just doesn't do it. And you could tell he didn't do it because he didn't even do it right. Like, it wasn't the right tense or anything like that. Like, he just missed the mark. But I suppressed the laughter that, that, was, that was building inside and just ready to, to come out. And, and I apologized, and I said, I'm sorry, Dad. And, and I think he felt bad 
Because the very next day he said, okay, hey, Steve, I, I, wanna, I wanna take you somewhere fun. I wanna do something fun with you today. And I found this waterfall that we can jump off of. And so we drove to this waterfall. It was about 30 feet uh, tall uh, and, and you could jump off of it into the body of water below. But when we showed up at the, at the waterfall, there was a bunch of people just standing around, not jumping. And so we, we got up to the top and we said, hey, what are you guys doing? Why isn't anyone jumping? And they said, we don't know if it's safe. And that's when my dad turned to me and said, Steve, why don't you go first? <laughs> now, I was 16, so I wasn't like, I was like, okay. So I did. I, I, I jumped, I jumped, I went first. And... And I made it, as you can tell, uh, I'm fine. And, and we had a great afternoon. And, and as soon as I jumped in, everyone else started jumping in. We, we just had a blast. And we drove back to the hotel. But when we got back to the hotel, right at the entrance to, to where we were staying, my mom was pacing with this like fury that I hadn't seen in a couple weeks at least. And, <laughs> and she was pacing back and forth and she was holding tourist brochures in her hand. And when we pulled up, she looked at us and started yelling, how dare you go to that waterfall? And we were like, what's the deal? And she shoved these tourist brochures in our face and said, on average, every single year, four people die at that waterfall doing what you were doing. And that's when I realized what you realized a couple minutes ago, that my dad didn't take me to that waterfall because he felt bad. He took me there to get rid of me. It's like he read Abraham and Isaac that morning. He's like, this is a good idea. Let's go that route. You know, I, I asked my dad his memory of this whole story earlier this week. And he said, I actually don't remember telling you to go first. I'm sure I did, but I don't remember that. He said, but I do vividly remember thinking better him than me. It, so that was the house I grew up in. Very loving and caring and sacrificial, apparently. Um, but, but regardless, I went first. And what was interesting was how many people became confident enough to jump because they saw someone else go before them. And that's what Paul did. He went first because of my chains, because of what I've gone through, because of, of what I've endured. This is the example. But he had to preach the gospel to himself first and get to this place that he could say he was in chains for Christ. And remind himself the victory that is found in Jesus regardless of circumstance. And he, and he processed that and he dealt with that and got to this beautiful place where he recognized the potential of his chains. What it could mean for someone else. I'm in chains for Christ. My brothers and sisters in Philippi, don't worry. I've got an attentive audience here in prison and I'm preaching to all of them. The guards, the prisoners, everyone. Christ is being glorified here in my chains, so don't worry. I know you think this is a bad situation, but I'm reminding myself and showing you that faith is an interpretation of a situation that sees progress even in pain. I know a name that breaks every chain. I know a name that understands every pain, either on this side of eternity or the next. I'm good. I know the truth of Jesus. I know his good news. And because of this example that Paul is setting, eventually it impacts others through others. 
mean, whether he's trying to or not, this is the model Paul is showing his brothers and sisters in Philippi. Stop worrying. The gospel is being proclaimed. We're making progress. That's the important thing, that in every way Christ is preached. That's happening, so I'm good, even in my very real pain. But then, I don't know if you guys caught this when I was reading the whole passage earlier, but it seems like after Paul gets through verses 12 through 19, his, his attitude kind of shifts a little bit halfway through verse 20. But like he starts talking about how the gospel's advancing and, and he says he's rejoicing twice in those first seven verses that he's preaching even in his chains and things are good. The gospel's being, being proclaimed. But then he starts talking about death and how, you know what? That's actually not that bad. That wouldn't be all that terrible. Almost like he looked past what he just said. I went first, the gospel's being, being preached because of my example. I'm rejoicing, things are great. But on the other hand, I wouldn't mind if I wasn't here anymore. And maybe Paul's just tired or maybe he's, he's just getting older and isn't thinking straight anymore. Or maybe he took one too many hits to the head. But look at what he says in verse 21. He says, for to me, to live is Christ and to die to die is gain. Yeah, actually, now that I think about it, I'd rather go home and be with Jesus. If I die, I get to be with the guy who knocked me off my horse and blinded me and radically changed my life, not just for now, but for all of eternity. To die would be gain. Amen. But hold on. Because to live is Christ. What? Just, just think really quick what we know about Jesus. He suffered on behalf of others. He faced extreme adversity. He was beaten, flogged, spit on, cussed at, and eventually crucified on a cross. He experienced more pain, loneliness, hurt, and adversity than probably any one person throughout the course of human history. The author of Hebrews said that he, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And the crazy thing about this, the crazy thing about Jesus is that he did it on purpose. For us, we were his joy. And we know that. And Paul knew that. Paul knew that he had an example before he was gonna be the example. And the example was Jesus. And that's what he's processing because he's still sitting in the tension of his reality in the reality of his chains and the pain that he's going through and the desire to just be done with all of it. And then he asked something so weird halfway through verse 22. Look what, it, look what Paul asks. He says, yet what shall I choose? I do not know. Should I choose life or should I choose death? You know, I don't know about you, but when I write things, I usually speak out loud while I write them. And, and I wonder if while Paul was writing this letter to the Philippians, if he was saying what he was writing out loud. And I wonder if that's what he was doing, if the guards overheard what he was saying. And when he got to this part, when he says, what shall I choose? I'm sure they would have been like, nobody asked you, Paul. What do you mean, what shall I choose? You don't get a choice in this. You're in chains, dude. If, Rome's gonna, if Rome wants to kill you, Rome's gonna kill you. You don't get to choose. Which I think is so true of our chains. The adversity we face is not something we choose. No one chooses to go through pain. No one chooses to have life give them more than they can handle. We don't choose the difficult things we go through. We don't choose our chains. 
So why in the world would Paul ask, what shall I choose? Look at verses 23 through 24 again. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. I don't want to continue on in this pain. I desire to be done with all this. I don't want to deal with this difficulty any longer, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. I wish I was with Jesus. Instead of dealing with these chains, but I know that Jesus didn't put these chains on me, so now that these chains are on me, I'm going to let Jesus use them. That's what I do get to choose. I think what Paul was showing them and what he's showing us today is that we may not get to choose our chains, but we can choose how we use them. And this is where we can go back to that question we asked earlier. What has happened to you that could serve to advance the gospel? We can't choose our chains, but we can choose how we use them. And this is where this whole thing moves beyond ourselves. When our chains, the, the adversity we face and overcome, or, or maybe you're still facing, maybe you're still walking through life with this stuff. When this becomes more necessary for someone else's, like Paul says in verse 25, someone else's progress and joy in the faith. You know, so often we think that we cannot be effective for Christ until these chains are broken. But that's not what Paul is saying. He's saying, Jesus, use my chains. And we have the opportunity to declare the very same thing today. You know, earlier this week, I was watching the Kobe Bryant memorial service on ESPN and Jimmy Kimmel was, was hosting it and he asked everyone in the audience to hug and, and, and embrace the people around them as they were processing their grief. And, uh, and I, don't, I don't usually get very emotional while, when, when celebrities pass or anything, because like, I, like, I didn't know them. But just that whole experience when I saw the pain and hurt that was going on, it, it, caught, me, it caught me off guard. And then, and then Kimmel, Kimmel said something that was so interesting. He said, you know, the only places you hug and high-five people you don't know are sporting events and the church. And it made me think about how connected we are to one another. Because if you believe in Jesus Christ and you're sitting in one of these spaces right now or watching online, then we have something in common that transcends awkwardness and discomfort. You know, this is one of the few places where it's okay to not be okay. That it's okay to not have it all together, where it's okay if your life isn't perfect and you can still be looked at as a fellow human being with significant worth and value. And I think that's what Kimmel was alluding to. And if he can get that, then I think we can too. To take it even further, this is what makes church a, a true family. A group of people who, who get to walk through adversity together, who don't keep the tough stuff from one another. Men and women who choose the fruitful and difficult labor of vulnerability, shared pain, and the choice to process it together. And let me see if I can illustrate this a little better. Um, can I get a, a volunteer or someone to come up on stage with me? Just from the front row. I'm not gonna hurt you. Yeah, thank you, great. That was quick. Some people over there were like, nope, not doing that. That guy scares me. Uh, can I put this on your left, your right wrist? Thank you. Got some good notes going today? Yep. Cool. 
What's your name? Stephanie. Stephanie. Awesome. So one of the things that I think these chains often represent is something that like holds us captive or, or weighs us down and we constantly feel like we can't move or it's, it's so debilitating. Like we can't, we can't do anything when we've got the, the weight of some of the adversity we face and some of the adversity we go up against. So these chains just represent a burden and a barrier. But we have an opportunity with these chains for them to represent something different. These chains, when we share them and we're open enough to be vulnerable and tell people what's going on in our life, all of a sudden they move from that burden to a link to someone else. And it can tether us to someone who might be going through a similar situation that we're going through. And then these chains start representing compassion, empathy, love, grace, truth. That if Stephanie were to share with me that she's gone through something that maybe I've gone through, then all of a sudden I have an opportunity to help her process her pain. I have an opportunity to help her process her grief. I have an opportunity to give her courage and strength in the midst of a situation where most people would say, I don't know how you're moving forward. You know, I mean, how often when we hear something from someone else, when we say, I've got this struggle, and they say, yeah, me too, when we go, oh my goodness, you just opened up a door for me where I can ask you questions, I can hear some of the difficult things that you went through, then maybe you can help me avoid. Like, like, like if, if someone's going through uh, struggling with, with depression or, or anxiety, and they're processing that, or someone you love is, all of a sudden when we share that with someone else, we can ask some questions and, 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 and comfort one another in ways that no one else could. That's the beauty of being tethered to one another because of shared pain and shared hurt and shared adversity. I and mean, you talk about addiction. This is, this is the 12th step right here. Amen. Alcohol AA. Alcohol AA. <laughs> my, my wife is a recovering alcoholic and she was listening to me preach through this message and she's like, you're teaching recovery. Thank you. Yeah. So, so this is a, one of the reasons why people say, hey, my name is, and I'm in, because it puts people on a level playing field. If you're going through a significant relational loss, some adversity there. I have a friend who went through a messy divorce and he called me up and said, hey, what do I do? And I was like, I, I don't know. Like I had never been through what he's going through, but I did know someone else who went through something similar. And the connection that was made between them has helped my friend process in ways that I never could have been able to help him process. The same goes through uh, physical ailments or, 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 or grief, like our cancer care group and our, our cancer support group and our grief care group. Like these groups are just a bunch of people walking through adversity together, helping one another deal with their pain. We have groups for most of this stuff that I'm talking about and they are so incredible because it's people who are on the, in the same place helping each other walk through adversity because here's the deal, your pain, your hurt, your chains were never meant to be carried alone. They were never meant to be carried alone. God intends us to share our hurts with one another. This is what a true church family looks like. You know, I think we've all heard that phrase that hurting people hurt people. I believe that healing people can help heal people as well. (laughs) 
as you think about the things you're dealing with and the chains that you've got in your life, I hope you remember today that what has happened to you can serve to advance the gospel because when people see how we deal with this as a family, when people see how we deal with our hurts together, that we're open and vulnerable enough that, that, that it transcends our circumstance, that's when people go, I wanna know that hope that you know. How do you have peace that surpasses my understanding? Help me with this. Help me see this. Help me understand this. This is what we have the opportunity to do today. Can you guys give it up for my friend, Stephanie? Thank you. I'll close, I'll close with this. Um, you know, when, when we share our pains, it doesn't mean that the chains are removed or broken. Maybe sometimes they are, but, but it doesn't mean that. But it does mean there's progress in pain. That's what faith is. Interpretation of a situation that sees progress and pain. And then I'll close with a story because I have a couple of good friends who I love dearly who are experiencing this firsthand right now. Um, if you have a middle schooler or a high schooler at our Livermore campus, then, and if you've had someone in that age group over the past seven years, then you probably know Jessica Vidal. Uh, Jessica was a person that I hired seven years ago to be our high school ministry events coordinator. She almost quit after her first event because I wasn't a good leader. I changed like her entire plan for the event and didn't give her any direction. And she came up to me after the event and said, I'm, I'm done. And I was like, no, you're not. And, and she stuck around, thank God, because she's been such a blessing to our church family and to our students and to so many people. And on October 1st of last year, Jessica and her husband Josh had a baby boy named Evan who was born at just 24 weeks gestation through an emergency C-section at one pound, 15 ounces. And anyone who knew Jessica knew that she was so ready to be a mom. She, she, she was always gonna make a great mom and we just knew how much she wanted that. But for as prepared as she was, all the time she thought she had to get ready for her son to come into the world disappeared like that. And all the emotions of joy and hope and happiness that they had for Evan coming into the world were quickly mixed with emotions and feelings of stress and anxiety and confusion. Because they were watching their son Evan fight for his life, all one pound and 15 ounces of him. To say they were up against adversity is an understatement. But like Paul did in our text today, Jess has looked at this chain, this circumstance as an opportunity for Christ to be glorified, for the good news of Jesus to be preached. You know, I know that she still asks the questions, why and God, what are you doing and all this? But she's also chosen to pray a prayer to the God who is above all and in all and through all. Show me how you can use me to glorify you, to advance the gospel. Show me how you can use me so that others can see Christ in me. And that's exactly what has happened. Since day one, Josh and Jessica have, have, have constantly sung worship songs over Evan. And they sing songs so often that everyone in the hospital knows Jess as the singing mom probably because she has such a beautiful singing voice, because she's singing so often. 
And their favorite song to sing to their son is a song that Josh actually started singing. It's the song, Great Are You, Lord. And if you know that song, you know that there's a line in that song that says, it's your breath in our lungs. And Evan's most difficult challenge through this part of his life has been in his lungs. They were underdeveloped at birth. And so he was on a ventilator for two and a half months and he developed a chronic lung disease as a result of that. And it's actually what's keeping him in the NICU. And, and for Jessica, this one line serves as a reminder for her that it is the breath of our great God that gives breath to Evan's lungs. So she's singing this song over her son and she's singing it so often that the nurses are coming up to her and telling her, the nurses who aren't Christians, who, who don't go to church, who don't even necessarily believe in God, are coming up to her saying, we can't help but sing this song at home and we don't know why. Great are you, Lord. But it's not just the doctors and the nurses and other families in the NICU but everyone she comes in contact with in the hospital is impacted by, by her willingness to be an example of faith that sees God's victory, that sees Christ's victory even in her circumstance. I mean, she's been so open and vulnerable and transparent with it that, that, that people are coming up to her constantly saying, the way that you're processing your difficulty, the way that you're dealing with your chain is an example for me on how to have hope and strength in the midst of my trial. It's been so incredible to see how her story is impacting others, even though things aren't resolved for her yet. Yeah, God is doing miracle after miracle in baby Evan's life. He's growing and progressing, and, and he's all the way up to 11 pounds now. Praise God. Like, so, so awesome what God is doing. But this fight isn't over. Like I said, they're still in the NICU, and just this week, doctors told Jess and Josh that whenever they do get to go home, they don't know when they're going to be able to go home, but whenever they do get to go home, that Evan will probably have to be on oxygen support for a couple years rather than a couple months like they were originally told. I mean, there's still so much of his future and his health, what he'll be able to do, what he'll not be able to do, that is completely unknown, but like Paul, Jessica carries this willingness to face whatever, the, whatever comes their way because she believes and trusts that God can use it for good so that other people can know the love of Jesus. And a couple, couple days ago, just to give you a little context of where she's at, I, I asked, hey, can I share your story with our church? And she said, yeah, totally. If our story can encourage my church family, then I am completely in. That's the attitude she has right now. She posted this on her Facebook page recently. She said, we trust that God is kind and faithful and that he's doing things we may never see or understand, but he has a bigger picture in mind than we ever could. We trust that what feels frustrating and pointless now may very well be what God is using in absolutely beautiful ways. We don't get to choose our chains, but we can choose how we use them. This is the example that Jess and Josh are setting for us now, and I hope it gives you courage to set the same example for others, that we would do the difficult and fruitful labor of being open and vulnerable with people about our pain, that the people that, that live on our street, the people we work alongside with, the people that are on our, the parents of our kids' 
baseball team, people we meet in the hospital, people we interact with in our community, we'll see that not everything's okay, but that's okay. We'll see that not everything's perfect, but that's okay. To see that not everything is, is just held all together right now, and that's okay because they see progress in our pain. They see a hope and a faith and a peace that transcends every understanding because we believe in the name that will eventually break every chain. If we want to see the gospel advance in the East Bay, this is the way we will posture ourselves. This is the way we will live. Just like Paul did in that cold, lonely prison, shackled and held captive. And just like my friends Josh and Jess are in that hospital room with their sweet baby boy Evan right by their side, we may not get to choose our chains, but we can choose how we use them. Father God, we, we adore you and we, pray, we praise you, Father, that, that we know that the ways that we can find joy in the midst of difficult circumstances is the encouragement and support and love we get from those around us, but also the bravery and courage we have that you give us to share our hurts and pains with one another. That God, these chains, this bit of adversity that we experience and go through will advance your gospel, Father, that is our bold prayer today, that what has happened to us, the pain we've experienced, will do great work for you, that what matters most to us is that you are preached, Father. So God, we, we praise you, we, we glorify you, we surrender our hurt and pain, our chains to you today, God. Use them. We know you didn't put them on us, but we know you can use them, and that's what we're offering today. So Father, work and move and have your way. You are a great, great Lord. You are a great, great God. We know you're with us in our battles. We know you're with us in our struggles, Lord. And that's why we can have joy. That's why we can rejoice. We love you, Father. We pray this in the matchless, powerful, beautiful name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.